Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming out. A big thank you to everyone who's tuned in online. However you're joining us this rainy Sunday morning, I'm just glad that you're here. For those of you who are new right now, we're studying through the gospel of Matthew as a church. Uh, Today we'll find ourselves in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus is going to give us a preview of the future glory in which he will return at the time of his second coming. And friends, though our text today deals with a yet future event, it is knowledge of what's coming in the future that will help us to better live for Jesus here in the present. So I hope you'll tune in and I hope you'll enjoy this message from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. I've entitled my sermon today, A Preview of Glory. Now, we all know the benefit of a preview, right? A preview is like a teaser. You know, you see the the preview of a movie and it kind of gets you excited uh, to go ahead and see the whole thing because you got, you know, just a little taste of it. And that's what a preview is. It creates buzz and excitement and anticipation uh, around something that's coming down the road. For for example, let me kind of illustrate this. You may have walked in this morning and and seen this building and it just looks beautiful and there's flowers on the outside and we've got these nice little, you know, stations and a cafe and all these kinds of things. Well, can I just share with you that what the building looks like today is not (laughs) what it looked like when we bought it. (laughs) Can I show you real quick what it looked like when we bought it? All right, here's a picture of coming down the driveway. Here's a picture of the main entrance that you walked in uh, this morning, very likely. Or maybe you brought your kids down to kids' church. This is the uh, previous kids' entrance, okay, with the trees growing up through the, you know. Here's the back of the property. As you can see, people used it uh, as the town dump and just left their couches and all kinds of stuff all over the place. And then this is what it looked like when you drove uh, off the property. In the inside, I don't have pictures, but it was even worse. I mean, the graffiti was off the charts and anyway, it was terrible. Now, here's the deal. We bought it and, you know, we wanted to turn it into a church, but it was kind of hard to get excited because I am neither Chip or Joanna Gaines. And so I didn't really, you know, have that gift of looking ahead and seeing what it could become. But that's kind of where the architectural drawings come into play. It's the architect's job to say, yeah, yeah, I see what a dump this place is right now, but let me give you a preview. Let me give you a picture of what it's going to look like when we're done. And so here we were buying this building. It cost a lot of money. Didn't know how we were going to afford it, all this stuff. We were a little bit discouraged seeing all the work that had to be done. But man, this preview, this picture, it, it sustained us in the present And it got us excited about the future. And if I could propose to you today, this is precisely what the text that we're studying today does for us. We can get discouraged sometimes in serving the Lord. And we can see difficult passages like the the one we covered last week where Jesus told us to die to self and deny self. But when we remember 
What's coming down the road when we get in our mind's eye the future that is ours through faith in Christ, it can sustain us in the present and just get us excited about what's to come. And that's the way in which Matthew is using the text that we're studying today. So with all that by way of introduction, let's now dive into the text itself. There's five things we see in our text today, the first of which is what we're going to call the promise. The first thing we see in our text is a promise. And though today we're primarily in chapter 17 to see the promise, we've got to go back to chapter 16, verse 28, because that's when it was given. So here we go. In verse 28, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, he's speaking to his 12 disciples, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if you were to read verse 28, divorced from its immediate context, you might make the mistaken conclusion that the promise is that some of Jesus' disciples will still be alive at the time of his second coming, which is not the case. When you take into account its immediate context, which is verse 27, then you understand it to be a promise that some of Jesus' disciples, they're not going to be alive at the time of the second coming. No, some of Jesus' disciples are going to see a preview of the glory in which he will return at the time of his second coming. Because that is what Jesus talks about in verse 27. He says, I'm going to return in the glory of my Father with the angels. So what's being discussed is the glory in which he will return at the time of his second coming. And once again, Jesus promises some of you, not all 12 of you, but some of you are going to see a preview of the glory in which I will return at the time of my second coming before you die. So friends, that's number one, the promise. Now, Jesus promised to return in glory. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what exactly does that mean? I mean, Jesus is going to return in glory. That's the promise. Now I know that that's, you know, what he promised. But what does that mean? And friends, simply put, for Jesus to return in glory, specifically, he says, I'm going to return in the glory of my Father. And what that means is that Jesus is going to return at the time of his second coming in brilliant dazzling, glorious light. That is what it means to return in the glory of his Father. We learn from Psalm 104 that the splendor and majesty and glory of God is the brilliant light with which he clothes himself. You may recall that when the Israelites came up out of Egypt and were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, God led them via a brilliant cloud by day and a blazing pillar of fire by night. And friends, that that light that emanated from the cloud, that light that emanated from the pillar at night, that was the glory of God. You may recall how in Exodus chapter 33, Moses said to God, show me your glory And God did. He revealed all his brilliance to Moses. And when he was done and the encounter was over, 
Moses' face was radiating the glorious light that it had been exposed to when God revealed to him his glory. So all this to say, for Jesus to return in the glory of his father simply means that he will return in all the resplendent, dazzling uh, glory of his father in the same way that he did in the Old Testament. So the promise then made to Jesus' disciples was that some of them would see this future glory before they died. And that leads really nicely to the second thing that we see in our text. After the promise comes the preview. The preview. And this, of course, is the preview that was promised. So take a look with me at verses 1 and 2. And after six days, meaning six days after Jesus made his promise, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Let's get geographically oriented to our text, shall we? Here's the nation of Israel, and today we're up north in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, and friends, there's only one high mountain on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, and it's Mount Moran. And so friends, that's where we are today. And when they got there, Jesus brought not all of his disciples, but some of them, Peter, James, and John, to the top of the mountain. And on the top of the mountain, Jesus fulfilled the promise that he had made six days earlier to show some of them the glory in which he would return at the time of his second coming. The text says that Jesus was transfigured. The Greek word there is metamorpho, from which we get the English word metamorphosis. So transfigured simply means transformed. On top of the mountain, Jesus was transformed. Peter, James, and John, they were used to only seeing regular old Jesus. But on top of Mount Moran, what they saw was Jesus in his Father's glory. They saw Jesus in all the dazzling brilliance in which God the Father revealed himself to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Matthew is really trying to draw our attention to this really uh, unexplainable thing. I mean, he's trying to describe how bright this light is that was emanating from Jesus, and he's having trouble doing it. So he says, you know, it was... It was as if his fa face was shining like the sun. His face was so bright that it made his clothing begin glowing. So in the Old Testament, the glory of God uh, made Moses' face radiate with glory. And here, the glory of Jesus' face made his clothing begin radiating with glory. Now, friends, understand how bright the light was. A few years after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, there was a man named Saul who was breathing murderous threats against the church of Jesus Christ. And having been commissioned by the synagogue leaders to head north to Damascus to arrest the followers of Jesus in the synagogues there, Saul had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus. 
And Jesus revealed his glory to Saul. And you know what happened? Saul was physically knocked to the ground and he became blind in his sight. And if it wasn't for Jesus sending his servant Ananias to Saul, he likely would have remained blind forever because that's how powerful the light of Jesus's glory was that was revealed to Saul, who then became the apostle Paul. But friends, this is the same blazing light that Jesus is now emanating before Peter, James, and John on top of Mount Moran. So this is the preview. The preview of the blazing and dazzling glory in which Jesus will return at the time of his second coming. And now that you've seen the preview, uh, let's thirdly note the persons. Okay, because there's going to be some people that are about to join Jesus and Peter and James and John. So the third thing we see is the persons. Look at verse three, please. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now we learn from Luke's gospel that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke to Jesus of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, with Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, uh, the apostle Peter recognizes that this is a pretty sacred moment, and so he doesn't want it to end. He wants to uh, you know, prolong it. He wants to preserve it. And so he turns to Jesus, and he makes this suggestion in verse 4. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Understand Jesus had been talking to Peter and the rest of the disciples about his need to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. And Pete says, yeah, that's one way we could go. But you know, another way we could go, we could just stay up here on top of the mountain basking in your glory. Peter doesn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Peter wants Jesus to begin ruling and reigning in all of the glory that he had just manifested before them. But before Peter can even finish making his foolish suggestion, God the Father intervenes as the third person in the scene. First person was Moses, second person was Elijah, and now God the Father himself appears in glory. So what we see in verses 5 to 6. He, Peter, was still speaking. Jesus, you know what we can do? We can set up the tents, we can just live up here, and you can come down in glory. He was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So friends, just as the glory of God descended in cloud form on top of Mount Sinai for the Israelites, so now the glory of God descends in cloud form for Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, on top of Mount Moran. And just as in the Old Testament, a voice came from the cloud to establish God's special relationship with Moses, so now on Mount Moran, a voice comes from the cloud to establish God's special relationship with Jesus. 
And just as the Israelites were terrified at the sight and the experience and the sound of the glory of God descending on Mount Moron, so now Peter, James, and John are likewise terrified. You say, Mike, why was it so terrifying? Well, friends, when the glory of God descended on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by lightning and thunder. And there was smoke emanating out of the top of the cloud because the glory of God descended on the mountain with uh, God's glory blazing as fire from within the cloud. So it's bright as can be. There's smoke coming out the top. And then in Exodus chapter 19, we learn this detail. The mountain itself, along with all the people at the base, was trembling violently. And as best we can tell, this is the experience Peter, James, and John are having on Mount Moran. I don't know about you, but I would be scared to death as well. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. All of this fanfare and all of these appearances of Moses and Elijah and God the Father, it was all for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. Matthew says that Moses and Elijah appeared to them, meaning to Peter, James, and John. And then he says that the cloud, the glory cloud of God the Father overshadowed them, again meaning Peter, James, and John. And it was also to Peter, James, and John that the voice in the cloud was directed. So understand, all of this was for Peter, James, and John. You say, okay, all of it was for them. Well, what purpose did it serve? And friends, the purpose that it served was confirmation. The purpose that it served was confirmation. The disciples of Jesus had no way in their mind to reconcile what Jesus was saying with the expectations that they had for God's Messiah. Jesus was saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And they were going, no, that's all wrong. Messiah is supposed to come to rule and to reign, to overthrow the powers of Rome and establish an eternal kingdom. And when he does, we want to be right next to him, ruling and reigning, enjoying all the privileges of his kingship. And that's why when Jesus in chapter 16, only a few verses ago, only a few days ago, said, I need to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die a criminal's death on a cross to take upon myself the punishment of the sins of the world. Peter pulled Jesus aside and he said, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And it was because they just did, they had nowhere in their mind, nowhere in their thinking could they reconcile this concept of Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but also going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. And so God graciously uh, helps them in their time of need. They couldn't quite grasp it. So God graciously sends Moses and Elijah to serve as confirmation to Peter, James, and John that Jesus was on the right trajectory in having the plan to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus and spoke to him of his imminent departure. They didn't pull Jesus aside and say, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. No, they talked to him about his death and in so doing confirmed to Peter, James, and John that Jesus' death was God's plan. 
Now, at this point, Peter, kind of the leader of the 12, and even the leader of the three who were up there on the mountain, he should have got the message. Jesus dying. This is part of God's plan. But again, Peter's kind of like me. He's thick-headed. And so he doesn't get the message right away. And he says, yeah, yeah, dying, that's great. That's one idea. Here's another one. Jesus, just remain in your glory. And I'll set up your kingdom right here on top of the mountain. And so now God has to enter the scene himself to deter everyone from going down that foolish path, which would uh, leave us all dead in our sins. And what does God say to Peter, James, and John? He says, guys, listen to Jesus. He's been telling you he has to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Listen to him. Stop going against it, Peter. Stop pulling him aside saying, no, this will never happen to you. Stop making suggestions that the kingdom should begin now. That is not my plan. Jesus is talking to you about his imminent death, and I need you to listen to him. And it didn't help that, as God said, listen to him. He was doing all these terrifying things, such as thunder and lightning and smoke and causing an earthquake on the mountain. That just helped put an exclamation mark at the end of what he said. So friends, do you see this was all for their benefit and it was all for the purpose of confirmation. Moses, Elijah, God the Father, all confirmed to Peter, James, and John that Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan. And now, having given Peter, James, and John all the confirmation that they would ever need that Jesus was doing what God wanted him to do, God the Father departs the glory cloud lifts and goes away and they are left face down on the ground, scared to death. And because his disciples are terrified, because they're terrified, Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. God the Father is gone. Now it's Jesus only that's left. So that's the persons. And now that you've seen the persons, I want you to note, fourthly, the prohibition. That's the fourth thing we see in our text, the prohibition. We learn from Luke's account of this same event that Jesus and Peter and James and John, they all spent the night on top of the mountain. But the next day, as they're descending, as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision, meaning tell no one what you saw until the son of man is raised from the dead. Now, this was an appropriate prohibition, was it not? What did the people do back in John chapter 6 when he miraculously fed them? They tried to take Jesus by force and prematurely crown him king before he had suffered and died for the sins of the world, which would have left all humanity eternally damned in their sins. Now, after such an amazing experience as they had on the mountaintop, they no doubt would have wanted to come down the mountain telling the rest of the disciples what they had just uh, seen. Uh, and heard and felt and experienced. And they would have wanted to not just tell the disciples, they would have wanted to tell all Israel. 
Hey, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. You know the experience Moses had on top of the mountain? Well, Jesus just had that same experience. And Moses was there. And Elijah was there. And the glory of God itself descended. And we experienced it. It's amazing. And the people would have tried to scoop Jesus up and once again force him to be king before God's appointed time. Jesus was willing to die for the sins of the world, but not prematurely, only when it was God's appointed time. So Jesus issued the prohibition, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. Okay, let's lastly note what we'll call the problem, the problem. Peter, James, and John had just seen Elijah on top of the mountain, and this created a very big theological problem for these men. You see, roughly 400 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Malachi had prophesied that Elijah was going to appear as the forerunner of Messiah. Malachi said that Elijah would appear before Messiah appeared. But Peter, James, and John had for the first time just seen Elijah on top of Mount Moran two and a half years into Jesus's ministry. This could hardly be understood to be before Jesus's ministry. And so they had a real problem in their minds. So they asked Jesus in verse 10, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come because he's just come now, which is not first. So what's up with that? And Jesus replies, beginning in verse 11, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then when Jesus said this, his disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus says, John the Baptist is the one that Malachi prophesied about. He came in the spirit and likeness of Elijah in that he wore the same clothing as Elijah, camel's hair. He ate the same food as Elijah, locusts. He ministered in the same area as Elijah did, which was along the Jordan River. And he preached the same message that Elijah did, which was repentance. So Jesus just clears up the problem that they were having. And now that the problem's cleared up, Jesus brings everything full circle. Earlier in chapter 16, he said, I need to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. They were having so much trouble swallowing that idea because it didn't fit with what they expected of a Messiah. So God gives them the whole experience that they had on top of Mount Moran. And now Jesus brings things full circle right back to his death. He says, just as John suffered and died, I'm going to suffer and die. Just as John was executed, I'm going to be executed. What happened to him is the same thing that's going to happen to me. Just as clear as Jesus was in telling them that in the future, he would rule and reign over an eternal kingdom, he was equally clear that before that time would come, he would first have to suffer and die for the sins of the world. 
And friends, that has to be the order, right? If you think about it, that has to be the order. Because what kind of kingdom would it be for Jesus to rule over that had no citizens living in it? But that's exactly what the case would be if Jesus didn't come to the earth to suffer and die, taking upon himself the punishment for sins that you and I deserve. But because he's done this, now, one day, when he returns in glory to establish his kingdom, you and I will be able to live in it with him forever. So this was a tough pill for the disciples to swallow, but friends, it had to be this way. It had to be this way. So Jesus told him, just as John died, that's what's going to happen to me. Now, as far as applying this passage to our lives goes, the transfiguration of Jesus on top of Mount Moran, it reminds us of this great truth. Jesus is coming again. Now, friends, we're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about the second coming. Oh, he'll come again to rapture his church, yes. But today's passage has given us a preview and a reminder of the time that's coming that we call the second coming. The rapture, the Lord returns, but in the air. The second coming, the Lord returns, but physically and visibly on the earth. He came once and he is coming again. And that's what the transfiguration of Jesus in our passage today reminds us. He's coming. In our passage, we saw a preview of the glory in which he will return. But what does that do other than remind us that he's coming? Now, friends, all throughout the Bible, we read of the second coming of Christ. In fact, the second coming, it's the best attested promise in all of Scripture. Most Christians are more familiar with the first coming of Christ, but do you know that the Bible covers the second coming of Christ? Uh, eight to one, that's the ratio. For every one time Jesus' first coming is mentioned in Scripture, eight times it's mentioned that he's coming again. Scholars count 1,845 references to the second coming of Jesus, including 318 in the New Testament alone. That comes out to roughly one in every 26 verses on average in the New Testament speak of the second coming. 17 of the 39 Old Testament books talk about it, as do seven of every 10 chapters in the New Testament. The second coming is second only to faith as the most dominant subject in all the New Testament. And Jesus himself referred to his second coming 21 times. How many of you understand Jesus is coming again? And friends, when he comes, he, he's coming in the glory of his father. As we read in Matthew 24, on that day, all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power, let's say this out loud, and great glory. On the island of Patmos, the Apostle John was given a vision of Christ at the time of his second coming, and he recorded this. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. So friends, this is coming in glory. This is coming in power. Now, friends, what you and I live in right now, it is not the kingdom of Christ. Right now, what we live in, it is the kingdom of Satan. 
And that's why there's so much heartache and turmoil and disappointment and pain and suffering in this life. We're not living in the kingdom of Christ. We're living in the kingdom of Satan. So praise be to God that when Jesus returns, he comes to overthrow the kingdom of Satan and establish a kingdom of his own. An eternal one. John continues in his vision of Christ's second coming, saying this in Revelation chapter 19, picking up in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it, Jesus, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness, he comes to the earth to judge and to make war. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Friends, this is Jesus leaving heaven. And guess who's on the white horses that's following Jesus? That's me and you. All the believers who are raptured and taken to heaven when Christ returns. We come with him when he comes again. Now, when he comes, he comes, as the text says, to make war. We call this the battle of Armageddon. And again, the Apostle John shares his vision of this battle. Revelation chapter 19, picking up in verse 19, John says this, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. And against his army, that's us. So understand when Jesus comes, all the satanic leaders of the kingdom of Satan band together and say, this is no good. This will not do. We've got to make war against Jesus. We have to fight to preserve this kingdom of Satan. And now verse 20, the most anticlimactic verse in the entire Bible. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest, meaning the other members of Satan's army were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And so many people died from this that all the birds of the world had to be called together to feed on the carcasses of those whom Jesus destroys. I'm kind of bummed. We're a part of Jesus' army, but we don't even get to fight. (laughs) Jesus just single-handedly destroys the kingdom of Satan for the purpose of establishing a kingdom of his own. And we'll be there with him. And today we have seen a preview of the glory in which Jesus will return at this time. And again, I say, our passage reminds us of the reality that Jesus is coming again. Yes, it's a glimpse of the future glory, but friends, this future glory helps us in the present. Because you know what? It's hard to live for Jesus sometimes. Jesus just told us last week in our text, deny yourself, die to yourself, and instead choose to follow me. Now, could there be anything more countercultural than denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, and following Jesus? Jesus knows it's hard. So he's given us some motivation here in our text today. 
He's given us a preview of his future glory so that in the present, we could find that which we need to faithfully follow Jesus until one day we're living forever in his eternal kingdom. So we've seen a glimpse of future glory that helps us in a practical way in the present. So friends, do you see the purpose of our text today? I needed help to be sustained in the present and to get excited about the future when we bought this building back in 2016, 2017. It was hard. I needed help. And the architect's drawing, the architect's rendering, the architect's preview helped sustain me in the present, got me excited about the future. That's the purpose of our text today. It sustains us as we try to live for Jesus in a world that makes it very difficult to follow and serve Jesus. And it doesn't just sustain us in the present. It gets us pumped up out of our minds about getting to live in the kingdom of heaven forever under the righteous rule of King Jesus. And how glorious that's going to be. My question to you today is, will you be there? Will you be there? Have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? By, by faith, have you trusted that Jesus took upon himself on the cross the penalty for sin that you and I deserved to take upon ourselves? And he took that death upon himself because the wages of sin is death. But friends, because he took that punishment upon himself in our place, we get to go free. When we ask God, forgive me of my sins. By faith, I'm trusting Jesus to deal with the problem of death. God, I don't deserve it, but since you've offered it, yes, I want to be a citizen in your eternal kingdom that you've appointed Jesus to rule over forever. Have you done that? And if not, I'm asking you, would you do that before you leave here today or before you sign off online? Church, can we pray? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And not out loud, but in your heart, when you're ready, would you say something along these lines to God? Just say, Heavenly Father, I, I just thank you so much for this preview of glory that we've seen today. It reminds me that Jesus didn't just come once. Jesus is coming again. And God, thank you for the hope that Jesus' return brings to my heart. God, when he returns, I want to make sure that I'm on one of them horses following Jesus back to earth. And I want to live for a citizen in the kingdom that he's coming to establish. So I pray today that you would accept Jesus' death on the cross as the punishment for my sins. And I humbly ask that you would grant me citizenship in his kingdom. And God, now I pray that you would see the evidence of my faith. Help me, God, to deny myself and die daily to my desires. And instead, help me to live for Jesus. And I thank you for the preview of glory, which inspires me to do just that. Help me, God, I pray. And I give you praise. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. 
Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you, and we hope to see you again real soon.